Does quarantine stink? It doesn't have to. Introducing Lidates, the new luxury candle line by the Lit Society podcast. Each aromatic experience is inspired by literature, from The Great Gatsby to Sula by Toni Morrison. Each candle instantly transports you into the setting that inspired its creation. Discover Lidates today by visiting L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S. That's lovelidates.com. Again, lovelidates, L-O-V-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S.com. Or visit lovelidates on Instagram and Facebook. Lidates, they're not your average fragrances. Growing up in rural Mississippi, one woman watches helplessly as five men close to her die over the span of five years. Through the pain and confusion, she sees clearly what facilitated the demise of each family member and friend, a system built on the foundations of racism and economical turmoil. She decides to tell their stories as evidence that these living, loving bodies ever existed. Her name is Jasmine Ward. The book is Men We Reaped, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Hi readers, this is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis... How are you hey. doing this week? Anything going on? Oh, for me, I, you know, I took a few days off last week, so um, I, I, I got, you know, I had to go back to work this week, so that was an adjustment, you know. Back when to the you office, don't be yeah. Doing nothing, no, not back to the office. You know, oh. wake up in the morning and flip uh, up back the laptop to your and start working. <laughs> <laughs> so you still working from home? Yeah, and I think I'll be working home for a minimum of at least another three months. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, same here. I'm going back to the office, though. Um, starting Monday. Well, I started actually Friday. So, you know, how's we're that gonna going try- for you? Fine. Uh, reduced hours. Uh, okay. So I have to start a little bit at home and then make my way into the office. But, you know, what? these days I have nothing to complain about because it's okay. crazy out here. Mm-hmm. So Are if they- I can stay. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. If I can stay Corona free and grateful to have a job, I'm not going to complain about anything. I'm alive. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel um the same way. Times are tough out here. Each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss based on the book we're reading. And the theme this week is coping with grief. I chose this because a lot of people are watching. Um, well, a lot of people just know what it's like to lose a loved one to death. That's that's just that's just what it is. And then on top of that, a lot of people are watching people die on social media and that can have an effect on your mental. It can feel like someone, you know, Die, because a lot of people you're watching die might look like people, you know, so right. it can feel like you're watching someone, you know, perish right before your eyes. So there's a grief process there. Um, uh, so how to cope with um, feelings of grief? I am going to speak of my own experience and also bring up some points that I found uh, through research. And I'm hoping you'll chime in, too, please. OK. All right. Um, so number one, cry when and if you want. 
um, a lot of people feel like uh, a way to help a person cope is to encourage them to cry, but not everyone grieves in the same way. So if your friend or loved one is not crying over a loss, there's no need really to encourage them to cry. And if you are the one dealing with loss and you don't feel like you're crying enough, don't feel guilty over that. Your body naturally responds to grief, which is an unnatural thing in, in a very individual way. Also, if you're crying all the time, don't feel guilty. If the person you're crying about passed away 15 years ago and you just standing in the kitchen crying and you're like, what is this? You're normal. That's right. completely OK. Completely OK. A hundred percent agree. I'm a crier. So when I um, grieve, I do cry and it's constant. So and I, it feels good to me, even though I'm sad when it's happening. I feel good to have that emotional um, release. Release. Yeah, that's yeah. important. That is so important in the process of grieving. There is no um, date when you're done grieving. Like you're not done grieving. If you knew the person for three years, then three years pass and you should be done. No, it don't work like that. You can grieve at any time. That is your right. Um, really embrace that part of the process. Um, second of all, address feelings of guilt. Now, I have had someone close to me take their own life. But there can be a lot of reasons why the surviving friends and family feel guilty over someone's loss. Um, and one thing I found is that it's normal to feel regret over things you wish you had done differently, things you wish you would have said. Um, the fact is you would have done things differently had you known what would happen, but you did not know. Therefore, guilt is inappropriate. And I got that from a source that I'm happy to um, share with any readers who are interested, please send us an email. But I love that statement. Guilt is inappropriate. So while you need to embrace this, um, these bouts of crying or not crying, whatever coping in whatever way you cope, guilt is inappropriate that you do not need to embrace and you need to proactively root that out. Uh, that's easier said than done, but it's your responsibility to recognize that any feelings of guilt you have for the way you the last thing you said to that person, what you did or didn't do, you need to remove that from your uh, psyche. Do you have anything to add with that? I think that's very important because uh, guilt is so common when, um, when especially in suicide situations, but in, in life in general, maybe your relationship wasn't where um, you wanted it to be. So, Or you uh, used to be really close and then you were going through a time when you were distant from each other or upset right. over something mm. and then they're gone. Yeah. So that's yeah. important and necessary to hear. So thank uh, you for sharing that one. That's a bonus. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Also communication. So cry when you want or when you don't. <laughs> don't cry. Address <laughs> feelings of guilt and communicate. Let the surviving uh, family members and friends know how you feel when appropriate. Share those feelings. Um, I remember when my father passed, one of your sisters just sent me something saying, I remember when your dad did this and I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and it helps you um, take yourself out of your own mind, out of your own grief and just reminisce on the good and bad about this person that you've lost. This yeah. the reality of them. So um, such discussions will no doubt relieve you of some of your grief and draw you closer to those surviving this loss along with you. Um, yeah. There's an example here. Try to start a conversation with this exercise. List two or three things that you wish you would have known about your deceased uh, friend or family member. And then um, ask those surviving when appropriate to discuss some of those things with you. Perhaps you have a parent that has died and you wish you had known what they were like um, in their teens or 
you know, in their 20s when they were dating? What were they like? Ask the surviving members again when appropriate. Um, and they will no doubt be more than willing to share that with you. It helps them feel like that person is still there, as indeed their memory definitely is. Yeah, I remember, um, if I may, um, when my grandmother died and I, I told you I was reading all her letters. And yes, yes. <laughs> going through all her stuff. Uh, I was going through all her stuff. I can't wait stuff. to tell her. I'm going to tell her, too. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> I am. I love snitching. I, you, mm, OK. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, she um, she had this friend that had recently wrote her a letter and I opened it up and that revealed so much about my grandmother. I felt so close to that. Um, the woman that wrote the letter to her, I was like, look at her. I mean, she wow. is really calling my grandmother out on stuff. And just, <laughs> you know, she is reading my grandmother. Telling her the truth, reading it. Reading it for film. And you yes. was like, mm-hmm, that was true. She did used to do that. Oh, this is yes. what I wanted to tell her, but I didn't want to get smacked in the mouth. Thank you. <laughs> and then she talked about a love interest my grandmother had. And Ooh. I was just like, whoa, my Girl, grandmother read that letter. Now, is this a letter? Is this a letter we should post on our website? Oh, I never I mind, shredded but. it because we were show posted, girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, along the lines of communication, uh, talk to close friends. That's kind of it sounds repetitive, but uh, maybe you have a close friend who didn't know the person that passed away. Talk to them about how you feel. They want to be there for you. And the person you least expect may be the one who helps you. I definitely have experienced that. Um, it's like, you know, um, God moved someone to say the exact right thing at the right time. It's not like that. I know for sure that's what it is. And that is a true comfort. And along those lines, if you are someone who um, believes in God, then talk to him. Pouring out your heart in prayer to the one who can provide comfort is indeed a comfort. Mm-hmm. Now, these are some there are some more things I got from the Mental um, Health Association. And those are a few tips I'm going to talk about now. Uh, they mentioned to keep a journal. Now, when my father passed, I did write one article um, for my website, just describing my final days with him with the permission of my mother. And that helped a lot to encapsulate how we were feeling in that moment, um, because you start to forget things. Grief also has a way of uh, giving you selective amnesia and you can forget the bad and good things that happened around that time. Mm-hmm. So writing those things down may help you remember the people who uh, really went out to be there for you, uh, put themselves out to be there for you and your family during your tough time. Now, you know, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I finally um, had a chance and probably maybe two months ago went back and read that. And that was a very beautiful article. Oh, um, I think it was in the mental space to read it, but it didn't make me feel weepy. And you said it that did in or did not? it did not. Good. And you said that before, but I, w- I wasn't ready. And mm-hmm. when I was finally ready, it just was really beautiful. And you're talking about the article I wrote about uh, the final days with my dad. I'm glad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel overly sad writing it. Um, but I did want to remember everything uh, that happened around that time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's on a blog I used to have, Chicago Wings. I mean, I guess I still have it. Uh, that was the last article it. I wrote. <laughs> and that was over a year ago. What do you write yeah. after that? Uh, travel tips in Miami? I just haven't been motivated. <laughs> so, so, so there's that. Um, also, in your journal, list some pleasant memories you have of that person. Uh, write down what you wish you would have said while they were alive. And imagine that you have a younger sibling. I love this. Imagine you have a younger sibling who is grieving with you. What would you tell that younger sibling? That's Those beautiful. are the words you need to tell yourself. But you may, you know, we don't coddle ourselves like we do children, even if we need it. So in your journal, 
perhaps write down what you would say to a younger sibling about their feelings of guilt or the grief that they're having coping with a loss. Mm, That's a good one. This I really like also, except that life is for the living, except that life is for the living. It doesn't sound fair when someone passes and life just continues. It's surreal when you see someone um, who is in a struggle online and that person has died because of some violence inflicted upon them. It, it can even subconsciously devalue life in some people's eyes. However, we need to accept that while we are alive, we must take advantage of every day we have. It takes effort to begin life again when we experience a loss, uh, but you cannot dwell on the past consistently. Also, postpone major life changes. Maybe don't get back with your ex. Maybe while you grieve. <laughs> Maybe don't get married <laughs> right away. Right, hold Maybe on. don't move. Maybe just wait a second. Maybe. That's huge. That is huge. Because <laughs> you want to comfort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all. That's huge. Huge. Be patient. It can take months or even years to absorb major loss and accept your changed life and seek out help when necessary. If your grief seems like it's too much to bear, seek professional assistance. You can talk to your friends and your family all day long, but sometimes you need a third party whose job it is to listen. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, So, yeah, for those who are who have friends and family that they're helping with grief, here are a few quick five quick tips. Um, or I'm sorry, four quick tips when helping others grieve. Openly grieve with them, number one, if you feel naturally inclined to do so. Don't hold back your tears. Number two, allow them to speak, even wild talk. You might have to speak, to, you might have to listen knowing that, you know, they're talking from a hurt place and you need to forget everything you just heard <laughs> once you leave. <laughs> let them just True. talk, just, um, just let it all out without judgment. Avoid saying things like, number three, avoid saying things like everything happens for a reason. I know a lot of people bite into this philosophy. It is seldom helpful. And um, I mean, I don't think it's true, quite frankly. Sometimes things just happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then lastly, encourage professional help when necessary. Without judgment, without um, inflicting any guilt upon them, encourage them to get help when when you honestly feel it may benefit them. Um, so that's it. You have anything you want to add? No, nothing additional. You um, shared some really great points. OK, thank you. Great. Then we'll move on to Men We Reap. Let's take a break, though. OK. Is that OK? OK. <laughs> and we're back. Oh, <laughs> we needed to take a break to light our light honey's candles and we back sooner than you thought hey, here yeah, we go right, so. okay so alexis you chose this week's book by jasmine ward men we reaped can you tell us a little bit about the author and perhaps her motivations for the book yeah um so given that this is a memoir and the book tells a lot about the author, again, I did not spend a lot of time on it, but I did um, pull out some points. Um, she is a professor. Now, after all that happened in this book, this woman is an associate professor of create, creative writing at Tulane University. Another book that called me lazy <laughs> and ungrateful. <laughs> Thanks, Jasmine. Uh, she uh, published five books, including the one that we're considering today. 
Men Re-Reaped was published in 2013. And it, again, is a memoir that discusses the death of five men in her life over a period of five years. Jasmine chose to write in honor of her brother, who was killed by a drunk driver in October of 2000. She and her um, family were victims of Hurricane Katrina. She, um, and actually, I couldn't find anything where she actually talked about that, but um, Wikipedia mentioned it, how um, I guess their house got swept away and they went really? to another. Really? Yeah, she doesn't mm-hmm. talk about that in the book. They went okay. to another neighbor's uh, neighbor and they w- re- kind of refused to offer them assistance. And then she went down to another one who finally let them in. And then over the course of um, some time, I think they moved a little further out and eventually she would go past for work every day. Um, the ravaged area that um, where her father once lived, where um, Hurricane Katrina devastated uh, the whole. Yeah. OK, wow. Yeah, so, yeah. That, and that's what I have about <gasps> the author and a little context. OK, thank you. Uh, a brief synopsis with no spoilers. Can you hook us up? Let us know oh. what's up. Brief spoiler. <laughs> uh, I mean, brief synopsis, no spoilers. Take it away. Men We Reaped tells the story of five men whose lives are tragically lost in a world filled with economic disadvantage and racial struggles. Kari, what were your first thoughts? My first thoughts uh, when reading like the inside sleeve of this book was, oh, this is going to be about gang violence. And I don't know if I'm in the headspace to really take that in right now. Uh, but I have to because I have a podcast that where I read a book each week. <laughs> Alexis is making you read this book. <laughs> Alexis is making me read this book. So I'm going to read it, team player. Um, and I was wrong. That's not at all what this is about. Where, where do I get off? So um, I think I was like uh, projecting my own uh, experiences. <laughs> and so, right. um, but there are other ways to die, apparently. So um, what about you? What were your first thoughts about Men We Reaped? So uh, let me just say, I was visiting a friend and her husband has a collection of books and he said that I could um, pick a book. So I was reading um, through some of his books and this, and her collection of books really intrigued me. Um yeah, so I wanted to read it just from the description of it. I was like, well, that's got to be really interesting because I know I, I felt some familiarity with her description in this book. So I um, yeah. I wanted to dig into it. Yeah, men lost and the women left to pick up the pieces. Man, I'm sick of that story. Uh, yeah. That's a story we, we are very familiar with. So now that we have that, let me get my coffee, light my lighter teas, and I'm ready. Alexis, please give us a deep dive into Men We Reaped. Let me kick up my feet. All right. All right. Here we go. This is going to have all kind of spoilers, folks. So mm. here we go. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Jasmine Ward was born April 1st, 1977 at six months. Her mom was six months pregnant and she delivered early in California and was released from the hospital May 26. It was expected um, not only that she wouldn't survive, but if she did so happen to survive, that she would suffer severe developmental problems because of her premature arrival. The family left California when she was three and her mom was pregnant with her brother, Joshua. The family returned to DeLille, Mississippi, a town that both her parents uh, grew up in. Jasmine's mom would later to go on to have go on to have uh, two younger sisters. That is Nerissa, 
who was born in 1982, and then Shireen, who was born in 1985. Her parents both grew up without fathers in their lives. So they they had this commitment to each other that they wanted to raise their children together. They wanted to give them the privilege of a two um, parent household and allow that to let them um, have opportunity. However, the parents. The parents married after the first two children. However, Jasmine's father was unfaithful to the marriage. And while for many years they fought to keep their marriage together, they just didn't, um, it just did not work out. I mean, he was having kids with other women. Some of these women were underage. One, at least, was a teenage love. Come when on. When it started. When it started. Yeah, but it sounds like even later she was yes. young. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it yeah, continued I mean, the at mom early age. really tried with him repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they would try to reconcile, but of course it ended in divorce. And when the Parents divorced. Her father moved to Shrewberry. It's a black neighborhood in New Orleans. And the mom would move to Gulfport, um, Mississippi, Mississippi, which was about 12 miles away from Delaw, which is like the family ground of growth where this epicenter. Yeah, the epicenter of the family. (laughs) Um, But when her mom moved away to Gulfport, she was really looking for some anonymity here. You know, she the the women in her life when they were living together in Delau, she felt like they were rejoicing over the demise of no, her she marriage. she didn't feel like it. Even her <laughs> friends would call and be like, hey, you looking for your husband? Where your husband at? I know where he is. He at my house. Her friends. Her friends. would be like, he don't want you. He's going to stay with me. And she got children with it. This it's is her children. husband. Yeah. Yeah. So she was like, I want to get away from all this drama. She wanted to get away from that. And rightfully so. I know what it means to want to get away and be somewhere and be anonymous. So, I, you know, I could relate to that. Um, so she did. She did move over to Gulf uh, Port, but they would later return to Delau. And, and that was because um, the children didn't really care for it in Gulf Port. She was caring for her children. Yeah, they, Orleans, did, they weren't doing well. Yeah. New Orleans. Yeah. New Orleans was considered the murder capital um, of the world, I think, at that time. And her father and his brothers had lived in these neighborhoods of New Orleans that were most feared. And while she herself didn't see or know this uh, murder capital from their lives, she did know that it existed. New Orleans is about 65 miles from Delau and Delau is about 66 miles from past Christian, which is another community that their family um, centers on. And then um, Gulfport. Oh, I did mention that it was about 12 miles away. Um, when Jasmine was growing up, she ended I love up. How a- you're making a little map of her life for us. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it just seemed Look like at you research. <laughs> it just huh? seemed like everything okay. was so close <laughs> together. But to me, in my head, it sounded far apart. So I it is to far hear. apart. These mm-hmm. are all road trips. Don't know. I wouldn't want to take. <laughs> and I've oh. taken those a million times. No, yeah. no. An hour away, 10 to, you know, 10, 20 minutes away. It's not For that sure. bad. Uh-huh. So when Jasmine was in the sixth grade, she ended up um, going to a majority white Episcopalian Mississippi private school. And she took, she went from sixth grade to high school. And this is an opportunity that presented to her. She was being bullied in the school that she was going to. Racially. Yeah. Someone would come in, sit on her desk and just tell black jokes. Yeah. And throw the N word at her. Yeah. Yeah. And even um, physically threaten her. Yeah. A lot of boys did white boys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And then, so this was supposed to be an opportunity um, to thrive um, academically and then otherwise. Um, but when she went to this other school, she suffered these racial uh, humiliations as uh, well. I'm sorry, I reversed it. So she was depressed in her original school, but she suffered a lot of uh, racial assault or uh, verbal assault at her new school, her new private school with all the opportunities. She was the only black person, right? The only black person, at least until she made it to her final couple years of high school. And that's a that's that's a hard thing to experience. Mm -hmm. Um. So I'm not going to talk a whole lot about her youth, but I will share that when she was eight, she ended up living with her um, maternal grandmother in the house that her mom had actually grew up with. There were 13 people living in a four bedroom home. The book kind of mentions how when the grandmother was left by the grandfather, she was left with this two family. This for, two because he left her for her friend. For her friend, Sorry, I just gotta it's, say that it's truly a, like a cycle of men leaving their women for friends, and <laughs> this community is so small. It's yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, cousin dating. Go ahead, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get into again. That. Small community. Small this is the community. South. Yes, it was just really eye opening, and so. um when the grandfather left, the mom made something out of that house and she added two more rooms to the house. And so 13 people were living there. You got the bachelor, four bachelor uncles, two aunts that had each had a son, um, the grandmother, her then her father, her mother, and then her sisters and brother, along with herself. So later, the younger sister would eventually live there. So they stayed there for a while. And so the family was a tight knit family. You know, you just... The they looked out for each other. Mm-hmm. They lived in. They truly looked out for each other. This is what she was accustomed to. This is what drew her in and had her loving the community in which she grew up. This community, this um, close knit community that she was a part of. And the family, were, of course, were affected by the policies of whatever president was in um, time. Economics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so that created this um, shaky and depressed economic society uh, this economic economy in the south and that truly affected their family so we learned that jasmine loved to read and she learned that early on she got an appreciation for reading early on she said it helped her escape um she talked about some of the books that she read and and this time when they went out into this open field and they wanted to well, they were told to get out of the house. You know, go outside and play. You know, one yeah, of those things. Yeah, oh, man, that's Southern upbringing. Uh-huh. Get your kids out when the sun come up and they better be in when the sun go down. Oh, yeah. that's some fun times. Yeah, I, I don't know them, but I believe them to be true. Oh, yes. I remember being in the South with cousins just playing. Yeah. feeling free. Oh, and so that is what I felt. <laughs> and could, you know, I could feel the fun and the joy of being outside and playing with your cousins and your brothers and sisters and creating this fantasy world for yourself. And that is what they did in the area that they um, named. What was it? Kids land, kids land, kids land. Was it kids land? Yeah. Something like I that. I think she came up with something after, but I don't remember what it was, but <laughs> it was kids land. I guess one of the younger kids could only say kids land, but it was kids land. <laughs> she said, I wanted something more like, uh, Bridget Terra Bithia. I Bithia. Can't yeah, because <laughs> she's a little nerd. Yeah, that's uh-huh. right. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was um 
that was fun. She enjoyed doing things like watching Saturday morning cartoons. It seemed like they had the run of the house on Saturday mornings and were able to hold the TV's attention and watch all the Saturday morning cartoons. She said that um, Popeye was their favorite show because it was broadcast from a studio in New Orleans and Popeye's fast food chain would invite the white children to the studio to sit on bleachers and eat fried chicken and biscuits. <laughs> I'm actually glad they didn't invite the black children for that. But that's but that was issue. a thing. Okay, go ahead. That was indeed a thing. That's what they did. She talks about um, being out and about and, you know, having a couple of dollars to go to the store and getting all the candy. And her favorite candy was the candy cigarettes. And I um, I got to get out there with the sis because I love candy cigarettes. Shout out to I my brother-in-law. candy cigarettes. Can you imagine? Candy cigarettes. What an evil concept. Why are you giving children candy cigarettes? <laughs> and you blow them and smoke and comes smoke out. Powder. comes out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, but she enjoyed candy cigarettes. And one time she got caught. Uh, what She had found... One of the uncles had flicked a cigarette. She raised to pick it up and then she went to go, we're going to smoke this cigarette. So they took she the little kids. She gathered all the kids and was like, hey, y'all, we about to smoke this cigarette. <laughs> it's about to be lit. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and then, mind you, like the, the kids were all younger than her. She was like the oldest and she was taking the kids to go smoke because she wanted the freedom that the uncle had was smoking the cigarettes. Men, men the were men were always free to do whatever they want. Leave their families or take their family savings and buy motorcycles. They could do whatever they want. Yeah. And she wanted that freedom. She Logical. wanted that freedom. That She wanted that freedom. But she did get caught. Um, She did get caught. Uh, let's see. No children smoked this cigarette. Right. The well, she tried, but the, the I caught him. She had heard them talking about, I want to smoke this girl, cigarette. get your butt here. Jasmine, get your butt here. I can already hear it. That's yes, how that went, girl. You know that's how that went. Who said we gonna smoke cigarettes? <laughs> Nobody, ma'am. What? I did, ma'am. <laughs> Ooh, it's giving me chills. I feel like I'm back in the South. Because that's how that went down. You know the story. <laughs> you know the story. <laughs> the beatings with the sticks. And it's something about the sticks down there. They're so strong. <laughs> oh, boy. I never heard of such Keep a thing. Keep going. I'm having flashbacks. Oh, my Ooh. goodness. Uh, <laughs> she said she experienced some violence in her life. Her and her brother and... She said she experienced some violence in her life, her her and her brother. There was a time when she, her younger brother, well, she only had the one brother. Her brother was riding on a kind of, I don't think it was a motorcycle, but maybe a moped with the uncle. And then they, uh, he hit something. And the the younger, the brother, he had that, um, the, the way your tongue connects to your bottom, the bottom of your mouth. Yeah, that was ripped and was bleeding. But the parents never took him to the, the hospital, hospital but it healed up fine and she said she's not sure what that had to do why they didn't take him to the hospital but they did not and um then she talks about the time when uh, she was bit by a dog she said that the family kind of raised well, well had as pets dogs um, some pit bulls um, mostly mixed breeds and there was a time when one of the newer dogs was um Mating. He was trying to mate, and she got and I think in the, the way of that. Female attacked her, no, like seeing was, her as a threat. No, it was the um. Oh, the male attacked her, male. seeing her as a threat. Mm-hmm. Okay. The male attacked her, seeing her as a threat, and um, he he bit her. I mean, she had dog marks. Of course, they he were was trying to go for the neck. Yeah, they were very concerned. The even the father, they understood that these dogs go for the neck. Um, she, you know, they knew she could essentially have died from that. So. That's a lot of her childhood, um, but we're going to move on uh, and talk about the first um, 
friend. Can I just go back for one second? Absolutely. She suffered from low self-esteem and there was a time when she let some boys in the house because she thought they were there for her brother. Oh, yeah. But one of them was trying to force himself on her. And in her mind, um, because she was trying to fight him off, but he was too strong. And in her mind, she was thinking, I deserve this. I deserve this. And her three-year-old sister stepped on his, stomped on his groin and kicked him out the house. Her three-year-old I'm sorry. brother. I'm Sister. Brother. Mm-hmm. Sister. 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 You're right. Three. Sister. Years old, she jumped on the couch, stomped his groin, and said, "Get off my sister!" And that like woke Jasmine up and allowed and galvanized her to push him off and kick him out the house. And when they closed the door, the three year old was like, "Hey, you better not come back." (laughs) And Jasmine was like, "Wow, uh, this three year old got more confidence than I do." (laughs) Right, right. I just love that. I love family sticking up for family. Even the three-year-old was like, it ain't gonna I don't know what you go, what you trying to do because she don't know what's going on. But she like, my sister don't like it, so I'm going to fight. Yeah, yeah. I and love so- it. I like you, Thomas said. I was mute. He pressed against me, sandwiching me between him and the cushions. I half stood and he grabbed my arm and yanked me back down to the sofa. You don't like me, he said. I shook my head. His hand slid up my arm to my shoulder, my neck. I jerked away from him and he moved with me. I was helpless. Stop, I said. What? I'm not doing anything. Stop touching me, I said. I deserve this, I thought. Come on, girl, he said, leaning into me again, leading with his mouth. He grabbed my arm. This is my fault, I thought. Shireen and Narissa were quiet. Stop it. I couldn't breathe. He was too big. Just sit there and... If you take it long enough, it'll be over, I thought. Shireen jumped up from her squat on the floor and ran toward the sofa. She leapt into Thomas' lap, feet first, and began jumping on him, stomping his crotch. Leave my sister alone! Leave my sister alone! She yelled. Get off me, he said, trying to push her away, sliding over enough that I was able to get up and away from him. I stood. Leave her alone, Shireen said, kicking. Narissa was crying. I scooped Shireen up under my armpits and swung her to my waist. She had given me my voice back. Get out, I said. What? Get out, I said, or I'm going to call my mama. He jumped up from the sofa. I ran to the side door, Shireen still on my hip, and swung the door open wide, letting in the heat of the day. Out. It didn't matter if my mother was home or not. Thomas caught me out when I was hanging clothes by myself or sweeping the carport. He wouldn't come into the yard, but he would roam the edge of the fence, the woods at the back of the house, scream, I know you hear me talking to you. You hear me talking to you. And then, I see you. When he said this, I thought he meant that he saw all the misery in me, saw that I deserved to be treated this way by a boy, any boy, all boys, everyone. And I believed him. That, it really does go to the level, the lack of confidence and self-esteem issues that she faced as she was growing up. So part two, Roger Eric Daniels III, 23, died June 3rd, 2004. When Roger died, four other men close to her had already died. She was returning home from graduate school that summer, um, 2004, and her cousin Alden, who had lived with the family while she was growing up, um, helped her to drive home. So he, he, went, he flew out to Michigan where she was in school, and then they drove back home together. Her only feeling that summer was that 
she hoped no one dies. I could truly relate to that because I remember experiencing and saying something very similar when I was growing up. Jasmine always went home for the school breaks, summer, winter, spring. She was always returning home. She missed home so badly. So when she went home, she stayed with her mother. Jasmine was the first in the family to be able to get away to college. Her younger sister, Shireen, was still at home. She would finish high school shortly after Jasmine returned home that summer. Her sister, Narissa's um, son, Deshaun, was being raised by her mother as well. Narissa had uh, Deshaun when she was 13 years old. And um, when, yeah, when she was 13 years old. When Jasmine returned home, she immediately hung out with Raj, that's Roger, um, a childhood friend of the family. And one time she was visiting home and this would have been the first Mardi Gras after first Mardi Gras parade after her brother's death. And Raj was there to kind of soothe her brother's absence. He was short and lean and he smiled a lot. And Roger's father had died from a heart attack at 28. So he was raised with his two older sisters and some other kids. I didn't get the sense that he was raised by his mother. Did you? I think he was raised by the family collectively. That's, that's what I got from it. Okay. All right. They mentioned a Mrs. P, but I don't remember ever hearing who she was. Um, Roger uh, dated Jasmine's sister, Narissa, they say for about a week. And when they were in middle school, but he broke up with her because she was too boyish. Uh, they be going out on dates and she put on her J's and like her baggy pants <laughs> like what she was basically left eye yeah also can I just say go ahead Jasmine is fine so I imagine all her family fine too all very beautiful people and she, yeah, yeah and she spoke about how her sister was very beautiful but he broke up with her because she dressed like a tomboy yeah <laughs> yeah so she's she, Jasmine described her sister as a beauty having curves as early as nine years old and her parents would say things like if we got to worry about any child um, making us a bra- grandchildren parents early Narissa would be the one I hope she didn't hear that you know but you know that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's that it. <laughs> so Raj was an artist, so he liked to draw, but he dropped out of school in the 10th grade, which wasn't uncommon for the youth, the young black men. Sometimes they were passively forced out um, by school authorities, branded as misfits and accused of serious offenses like selling drugs or harassing other students. Sometimes they were pushed to the back of the classroom and ignored. And Raj was in one of these classrooms where he was truly ignored. When he left school, he ended up moving to L.A. in 2000 to live with his relatives, and he loved it there. He worked in the auto body shop, and he made more money than he would have been able to make while living in Mississippi. But Raj ended up returning to Dalau in 2002. Uh, Jasmine mentions how while there are people that stayed away, there are a significant number of people that came back home when they left. When they hung out that summer of 2004, they did the things that they always did. They hung out at that club, Illusions. They would laugh. They drank. They smoked. That is how they coped then with life. The summer, Raj talked about returning to California, but Raj snorted cocaine. He actually died of a heart attack after snorting cocaine and taking um, pain meds. Friends would stop by his house. And they were knock on the door looking for him, assuming that maybe he was just passed out. But sadly, he had died. He laid at home dead for two days before 
He was found by his sister Rhea. Part 3. Desmond Cook, 31, died February 26, 2004. Now, Jasmine met Desmond through her sister Narissa, and she met him not in her youth, but in her um, older life. And Desmond was a lot older than the other kids. Narissa was the first of their family to move out on her own, but she didn't have a choice. She was kicked out after her mother. And Narissa uh, disagreed on how to mother uh, Narissa's son, Deshaun. One time in their youth, Joshua told Narissa she was loved least because she was the middle child. And that kind of colored Narissa's sense of uh, self and made her act out and and want to be special to someone. So it's a whole self-esteem thing. I'm thinking that was probably backed up by the action. That was probably partially true. (laughs) That her mom didn't love her? Oh, that she was loved he less. He didn't say that they didn't love her. He, he said, said loved less. I'm the boy. Yeah, like what special place do you have in this family? You are loved the least, mm-hmm. which is something that family might throw at you, especially kids sometimes. But yeah. she really took it to heart. Yeah, and that does happen when it gets taken to heart. That'd be serious. People shouldn't say those things. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's family. What you gonna do? I might have told some people, you know, don't nobody even like, I think you adopted. You don't even look like us. <laughs> People say that all the time. <laughs> mm. And we internalize those things. Well, anyway, Damon was friends with Narissa's longtime boyfriend, Rob. Rob. By the time she'd met Damon, they had already lost three friends by then. And they couldn't really reconcile their youth with the fact that they were all dying. So they drank. They smoked. They did other things. Again, they're coping. That's the way they knew how to cope. Damon grew up in Delau, but he was unusual because he was an only child and he grew up with two parents um, who were working, who had working class jobs. He grew up having things that other children wanted, like a swimming pool, a basketball hoop. So his place was the place where children wanted to hang out. Damon graduated from high school. He went on to the military, but he decided the military wasn't for him. Damon is described as a hustler in the traditional sense and that he would do anything he needed to to care for his family. He had a child and a girlfriend that he lived with at a home that his grandmother gave him. He worked as a carpenter and learned that trade as he went. He worked at a clothing factory, but the job that he had when he died was at the pharmaceutical company that his mom worked for. They often hung out at her sister Narissa's house and uh, Jasmine got to know that. Demand over like a crawfish boil. <laughs> she said one time he asked, what you doing in New York? And she told him she was trying to become a writer. Her sister said she'd write about real life and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they be about like smoking and drinking and stuff. Yeah. It's yeah, about the hood. It's some about, real stuff. Right. Exactly. So Demond <laughs> was like, like, oh, that's dope. Yeah. You should write about my life. Desmond sat at the table with Naressa and me and Shireen, passed us drinks, asked me questions about what I did. So what you doing up there? I'm trying to be a writer. What you want to write? Books about home, about the hood. She writing about real stuff, Shireen said. What do you mean? Desmond asked. They be selling drugs in the book, Shireen said. For real? Desmond asked. Took a swig of his beer. Yeah, I said, <laughs> laughed. Drank a third of my bottle. I told you, she'd be writing about the hood, Shireen said. You should write about my life, Desmond said. 
<laughs> I should, huh? I laughed again. I heard this often at home. Most of the men in my life thought their stories, whether they were drug dealers or straight-laced, were worthy of being written about. Then I laughed it off. Now, as I write these stories, I see the truth in their claims. It'd be a bestseller, Desmond said. I don't write real life stuff, I said. It was my stock response for that suggestion, but even as I said it, I experienced a sort of dissonance. I knew the boys in my first novel, which I was writing at the time, weren't as raw as they could be, weren't real. I knew they were failing as characters because I wasn't pushing them to assume the reality that my real life boys, Dudman among them, experienced every day. I loved them too much. As an author, I was a benevolent god. I protected them from death, from drug addiction, from needlessly harsh sentences in jail for doing stupid juvenile things like stealing four-wheel ATVs. All of the young black men in my life, in my community, have been prey to these things in real life. And yet, in the lives I imagined for them, I avoided the truth. I couldn't figure out how to love my characters less, how to look squarely at what was happening to the young black people I knew in the South, and to write honestly about that. How to be an Old Testament God to avoid all of this, I drank. Demond had been the witness to the aftermath of a shooting and had agreed to testify against the alleged shooter. The shooting happened in Delisle during a holiday. Um, Demond had also agreed to testify against a drug dealer who wasn't from Delisle, but had been operating in the neighborhood. His conscience had moved him to testify in the first case um, with the shooting, but in the second case, it was preservation. He was riding in the car with the drug dealer when he was stopped by the cops. So the idea that he needed to testify against somebody that kind of weighed on him maybe made him a little edgy. So if there was loud music being played at outside of his home, he wanted people to keep that down because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. So on February 26, 2004, DeMond was working third shift. And he called his friend Rob, that is Nerissa's boyfriend, and asked him to run to the 24-hour pharmacy with him to get diapers for his daughter. And instead of going straight to Rob's house after he left work, he went home. Rob waited, but then fell asleep because Devon never showed. His girlfriend would wake in the middle of the night because he wasn't in bed and she found him dead on the front lawn. Devon had been shot. Again, leaving another emotional upheaval. Part four, Charles Joseph Martin, 20, died January 5th, 2004. CJ, he was called, was one of Jasmine's many cousins. Jasmine went away to college when CJ was 12. The neighborhood children played at a park inside uh, instead of the family homes because it attracted less police. Um, CJ was 14 when he started dating. Shireen, this is Jasmine's sister. Yes, that is his cousin. Kissing cousins. And they didn't care. It made them feel like star-crossed lovers. But for real, everyone was just going, oh, y'all nasty. (laughs) Literally. And they did not care. And so while many people (laughs) hated that they were dating, it wasn't uncommon. Cousins dated. They married. They had children in Dalau and Pastor Christian all the time. (laughs) They had for generations. This was normal. <laughs> they were basically like, you know, um, Jane Austen characters, but in <laughs> post antebellum South. <laughs> right. Right. And 
this happened especially in small towns and communities uh, confined by race and class. So it would seem inevitable that these things would happen. But as Kari mentioned, they didn't care. The couple was inseparable. His mother was a single parent to him and his sister. His mother never married. He lived with his mom, but was never home because his room ceiling was caving in and there was boxes on the, his bed that uh, filled with things that weren't his. And, and so maybe this left in him a feeling of being a burden. So he would be, go to his father's house. But at his father's house, his father was living with his girlfriend and her daughters. And while his father did try to integrate him into that um, new family, I don't think um, CJ it really kind of took to integrate it. it. Yeah. yeah, he never officially integrated. So he he hung out or stayed at other cousins' homes and just you know slept there mostly. He never really wanted to go home. When CJ was seventeen, he dropped out of high school. Just like Raj, he likely felt ignored and unremarkable because he didn't have. He wasn't an academic standout. And while he did like um, sports, he didn't play organized sports. But one day while CJ, Shireen and another cousin were together, they found a pit bull and they decided um, CJ and Shireen that they would keep that pit bull as a baby for themselves. <laughs> this is low key yeah. adorable. OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although Shireen and Jasmine were eight years apart, Jasmine says that Shireen was her best friend. So they did a lot of things together. CJ um, often felt like he wasn't going to be around forever. And of course, when he would say things like this, um, they would tell him to stop saying that. He never spoke about what he dreamed of doing, um, what he would do when he would grow up. It's just, you know, he just felt so disconnected. He didn't aspire or dream for those things because he felt like he would not be on earth long. One time, when CJ was walking along the tracks with his uh, friends or cousins and past Christian and a train was coming, CJ seemed to ignore the train coming and kept walking along the tracks while his friends um, moved out of the way. CJ waited until the train was at his back and the c- conductor was panicking. Years later, Narisa told me a story she heard from one of CJ's friends and past Christian. They were walking along the train tracks, Narisa said, because it was the fastest way to get around town. CJ would have been sure-footed, stepped easily over the hunks of granite that shifted while he skimmed from wooden cross tie to wooden cross tie. Over years, these had been burned black by the Mississippi sun and the heat of the trains. On either side of the tracks, ditches ran deep with water. Cattails grew tall. CJ would have heard it first, the way the train whistled in the distance behind him. His friend lopped on for a few steps and then crossed over the steel rails before wondering why CJ kept walking. A small smile on his face, but even that was like a slide of rocks down a hill. All hard. Or perhaps CJ glared at the ground when he walked. Either way, he ignored the blasting train advancing toward him. He ignored his friend who flinched at the train's blast. I ain't, CJ told people. I ain't long for this world. He waited until he felt the train cleave the air at his back, until the horn made his eardrums pulse, until he was sure the conductor was panicking. And then he called on his lean golden body to do what it would. And he jumped from the tracks, out of the way, alive another day. On January 4th, 2004, as CJ and Shireen were in Jasmine's car in the driveway, he didn't want to leave. He always wanted to stay with Shireen. And this was another day. He just wanted to stay with Shireen and talk. That's what all he wanted to do. But Shireen said she hated the cold. So Shireen went inside. 
and CJ left. The phone rang at 2 a.m. in the morning, and it was CJ's mother. Jasmine answered the phone. CJ had been in an accident and didn't make it. CJ's mother cried and hung up. Jasmine didn't feel like she could tell Shireen herself, so she called her cousin Hilton, and he came and told Shireen that CJ was with his cousin and was hit, and they hit a train. It was a foggy night. There was no reflective gate at the railroad because crossing. they're in a poor neighborhood, so um, no one bothered to keep up the warning signs around the train. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so, and even if the warning signs were up, they said the fog was so thick that night that it was it, it, it a just light. They seemed like seen a lost cause. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, CJ was in the passenger seat, and when the car swerved, it hit the right side of the um. When the car swerved and hit the train, it hit the right side of the car, was crushed on impact. CJ was stuck inside the car. The car caught fire and he burned while his cousin stood helplessly hollering for help. Part five, Ronald Wayne Lazana, 19, died December 16, 2002. Jasmine, by this time, is 15 years old. She attended elementary school with um, Ronald's oldest sister. People thought they were uh, related. While in high school at a private school, Jasmine was a counselor at a day camp for underprivileged children. Most of the children in Delisle and past Christian were eligible to go, but only three attended that summer. That's Antonio, her cousin Razia, and Ronald, who was nine. Jasmine remembered thinking that he was going to get all the girls because he was such a cutie and she felt like he was a charmer. Jasmine wanted to volunteer at the two-week camp because she wanted to get out of the house and Joshua was old enough to watch the younger sisters. Jasmine was a dance teacher at the camp and the other uh, teacher, her and the other teacher choreographed dances to um, the Humpty Dance and I Wish I Was a Bit Taller, uh, which they would perform for the other students at the end of the week. At the end of the day, on that first day, Ronald told her she couldn't dance and he ended up convincing her to add um, a dance to the routine. He, they called it the pop. I was thinking pop locking. No, I remember when boys used to pop like girls. I do do remember. <laughs> I, I remember that. So that's what I assumed it was. I don't think they were pop locking. Okay. I think they was like popping. Because <laughs> she was like, okay. you can't pop. And he was like, yes. Right. <laughs> oh, yes, he did. Mm, 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 right. And he was looking back at it. <laughs> that's the 90s. <laughs> yeah. So Ronald was a charmer, as I mentioned. And so one day Jasmine told Ronald that he was cute. And Ronald said, one day I'm going to marry you. Jasmine was like, really? He was like, yep. You promise? Yep. So Ronald was good friends with Shireen. And so um, when Jasmine would come home from school, uh, he would be at her mother's house, hanging out with Shireen in her room. He always seemed to be smiling, but she didn't know that he had this uh, dark side or that he wasn't happy. He seemed like he was. Ronald lived with his mother. They would argue. Um, then he would live with his sister. Then they would argue. And then he'd be homeless for a time until his older cousin, Selena, found him squatting in an abandoned house. And she told him, kinfolk don't live on the street. Ronald moved in with her. Ronald snorted coast cane and hustled for money. This is why he fought with his family. They loved him dearly. He loved them too. It made him unhappy to be estranged from his family. They just wanted him to start working and stop doing drugs, but he couldn't stop. He wanted to go to rehab. Again, because he hated that he was estranged from his family. He felt he couldn't please any of the women in his life, including his girlfriend. He told his cousin one time that he was going to pull a trigger once, but the phone rang and it was his sister. So he didn't do it that day. 
His cousin asked why. He said, I got all these problems and my girlfriend been doing shady stuff. He thought she was cheating on him. Ronald said he loved this woman to death. The night before Ronald died, one of his cousins said that he told him he was going to the military. He said the military presented hope for him. Selena said her son's her son's birthday was the day before she thrown a party and she got a call from Ronald every other hour saying that he was coming. He was on his way. He didn't forget. But at the end of the day, Selena received a call from one of his friends who said she saw him. I'm at the gas station and he didn't really look like himself. So when she turned around to try to connect with him, he actually disappeared. December 16th, Ronald was at his sister's apartment alone, talking on the phone to his girlfriend. He said, tell me you love me. And she said no. Because she was sick of him whining. (laughs) Yeah. 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 He said, I'm going to kill myself. She said, you're not. Stop playing. And she dismissed his threats. When he hung up, he shot himself in the head. Jasmine learned about Ronald's death while at work in New York City and Shireen called to tell her um, and she came home for the burial. Part six, Joshua Adam Dado, 20, died October 2nd, 2000. This is where the past and the future meet. This is after the pit bull attack, after my father left and after my mother's heart broke. This is after the bullies in the hallway, after the nigger jokes, after my brother told me what he'd done as we stood out on the street. This is after my father had six more children with four different women, which meant he had 10 children total. This is after my mother stopped working for one white family who lived in a mansion on the beach and began working for another white family who lived in a large house on the bayou. This is after I'd earned two degrees a crippling case of homesickness, and a lukewarm boyfriend at Stanford. This is before Ronald, before CJ. This is before Demond, before Raj. This is where my two stories come together. This is the summer of the year 2000. This is the last summer that I will spend with my brother. This is the heart. This is every day. This is. When Jasmine finished her master's coursework at Stanford in April 2000, she packed up her things and moved home, back to Mississippi. She wanted to live in Mississippi or somewhere near. She was tired of being away um, and being perpetually lonely. She was homesick and wanted to be near her family. Going away from college didn't make her more confident or self-assured as she had expected. Instead, it made her confused, timid, and unsure of herself, and she yearned for the familiar. Her then boyfriend had decided to take a job in New York City after graduation, and she felt like it was presumptuous to go with him, even though they had been dating for five years. Yes. So she picked up. um, She was picked up from the airport by her mom and her brother, Joshua, and a cream colored caprice that her mom had purchased for herself and then later given to Joshua as his first car. While Jasmine desperately wanted to return home, she hadn't considered that her um, bachelor's in English and her a master's in communication would be virtually worthless in this coastal economy um, where jobs in casinos, factories, and hospitals and the military base were the thing to do. So she pushed her job search out further. She looked in Alabama. She looked in Louisiana. Then she even looked in Georgia. Georgia. Then she faced the challenges of um, looking for work out of state, not being a resident in the state that you're applying for a job in. Um, the whole time, she was running up the long distance phone bill at home. So her mom um, canceled the long distance. She's like, you better forget that girl. 
And so she ended up going to the gas station to buy some phone cards. In June, Narissa and Shireen told Jasmine that mom had hinted that she might kick her and Joshua out if she didn't find if they didn't find jobs. Weeks later, Joshua found a job at the Grand Casino in Gulfport as a parking attendant. He liked what he was doing. He got to drive nice cars all evening and get paid for it. So he was satisfied. While Joshua was, was between jobs and before he landed his job at the casino, he would sell crack. When Jasmine found out, she was worried about her brother, of course. She questioned him on it. And he said, you know, I don't like doing it. I mean, do you think I like doing it? He said he wasn't like the rest of the people out there. Because when he got a job, he actually worked. And that was kind of like his side gig in between. But Jasmine was worried about him. He had dropped out of school in the ninth grade, participated in the job court for a couple of months, but then he quit. He enrolled in a GED program and thought about joining the military, but changed his mind after watching Full Metal Jacket and decided he didn't want to die like that. A former college roommate had told Jasmine about a possible job at Random House, um, a publisher in New York, and Jasmine asked her to send along her resume and a cover letter. If she was offered this job, she would definitely move. Jasmine's last memory of her brother was when he saw her suitcase on the floor in the room, in her room. He asked where she was going and she told him to interview for a job. And he said to stay. And She said yes. Her brother didn't want her to leave again. Again, they were a very close family. But Jasmine felt like she had no choice. She had graduated in March and it was now the end of September and she still hadn't found a job. And for real, and she was for continuing real, to rack up random debt. House. <laughs> like, yeah. Go get that job. Oh, right. Yeah. I'm like, did I say something different? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's right. And then, you know, student loans kick in after six months. Ooh, so, you oh, know, the clock. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> the, the clock was ticking. So she had things to do. Jasmine had arranged to be in New York from October 1st through the 4th for interviews. And she wanted to be home for Shireen's um, 15th birthday on the 5th. So after one interview, she headed back to the boyfriend's brown house that she was staying with. And he was a banker and he worked 18 hours, but he was, a he jerk. was at the house. Yeah. Also that. But he was at the door when um, she arrived. Um, so she was surprised to see him home. And he told her that she needed to call her dad. She called her dad and was told that Joshua was in an accident last night and didn't make it. Of course, this devastated her. It turns out Joshua had gone to work that afternoon on October 6th. And although he wasn't scheduled, he was picking up some extra hours. Narissa and Shireen had saw him coming through the um, employee parking um, garage. So they kind of waited at the main entrance, hoping they, the main employee entrance, hoping they can catch him um, before he went into work. But they didn't see him. They waited for like 15 minutes and left, assuming that he took a, he went through another entrance. That night on October 2nd, after he clocked out, instead of taking the highway, and then getting off on a Dalau exit to go home, he decided to take, I would say, a scenic, a more scenic route. And so he gets off uh, on the median by these million dollar realist, um, million dollar homes uh, and a drunk driver, a white man in his 40s, speeds up on Joshua from behind a, in a white car that he had borrowed and hit Joshua's car at 80 miles an hour. Joshua pressed his brake by instinct, but the momentum was too much and the car didn't stop. He skidded sideways onto the front yard of one of those mansions and his car hit a fire hydrant, which came, which came up through the floor of the car, peeled back the metal and smashed into his chest and then hit an oak tree. The car then hit an oak tree and then landed upside down on one of the lawns. 
Joshua died. The driver of the car, his car flew across two lanes of highway and landed on the beach. So the night they found Joshua, his accident was a mystery. So they assumed that he just lost control of the car. But the next day, someone called past Christian police department and reported that there was a car on the beach. The driver had staggered home after he hit Joshua. But the by the time the police tracked the car of the um, owner's house, it was the next day and the driver was no longer drunk. He was arrested and convicted for leaving the scene of an accident and sentenced to five years in jail Not in murder. order to pay right yeah. order to pay restitution. He only served three years and two months and never paid her mom a thing. Um, Narissa, I believe, went to school with the nephew and the nephew attempted to apologize for the uncle saying he messed up all the time. Yeah, that don't bring her brother back. And her brother's Not life all. in the eyes of the justice system was worth three years. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So part seven, the end. So Jasmine kind of concludes her book with some statistics that I, I wanted to um, note here. And unfortunately, I didn't get the most current, but um, these were the statistics at the time. 38% of Mississippi population is black. It is one of the six states that African-Americans constitute at least a quarter of the population. In 2009, the poverty rate was the greatest in the South and greatest in Mississippi, where 23.1% of the people live below the poverty line. In the 2001 census, um, Mississippi was listed as the poorest state in the country. The medium income was 34000 um, and about 35% of Black Mississippians live below the poverty level compared with 11% of whites. About, about one in every 12 Black Mississippi men in their 20s is an inmate in the Mississippi prison system. Although I didn't share all the details of these stories, the book weaves in how family history, racism, poverty, and a lack of economic power have affected them all. The death of her brother left her consumed with grief and led her on a path of drinking, smoking, and anguish as her only coping mechanism. Jasmine had to look back to her mother and her grandmother's legacy as a lesson of resilience, courage, and strength to get through her grief. Now she would pass these lessons on to her daughter. And that's it. Let's wow. take a quick break. Okay, let's do it. Yep. That's our book. What's your final verdict and would you recommend this book? My final verdict is that this is a book that deals with a very heavy, sombering, sad topic, but she does it in such a poetic, matter of fact, uh, human way that I was surprised by the end of the book. I wasn't overcome with grief myself. I really compared these stories to the men I know in my life and the women who seem to be left picking up the pieces and what that means for a future generation. So it made me reflect a lot about my own experiences. I really appreciated Jasmine bringing these um, lives uh, to the pages of her book so that they're not forgotten. Even in the smallest, uh, in the shortest life, there's a lot of uh, meaning there. So I love this book and I would definitely recommend it. I, I loved it. I, I, I think it was a great pick. Thank you so much. What about you? What about, did you enjoy the book and would you recommend it? So this book left me with so many feelings. Um, 
it was remi- I remind I was reminded of my teenage years with some joy, with some sadness. I was reminded of my brothers, and I'm just not. I'm just not sure I want to have feelings yeah. and memories like these. So that was kind of hard. Um, but I loved how she weaved the statistics in there and stories of what was going on at that time. And so for that, um, it keeps in my head level because there's some factual aspects to this. I mean, it is fact, but there were some relatable uh, yeah. aspects. Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah, okay. I do. Um, that, that help it. Um, that helped me digest it. Mm. So I did enjoy the book and I would uh, recommend it with the note that there is some harsh language in here. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Well, that's it. That is episode 20 something of the Lit Society podcast. Thank you readers for tuning in again. Please join us next week where we're covering what book? Yeah, I don't know the answer. It's The Silent Patient. <laughs> well, that's what it is oh, now. Okay. Please continue to visit our website for updated uh, updated reading schedule. Uh, depending on the times, sometimes we change the book if things get too heavy. Uh, we've tried to insert some humor. Uh, but for right now, it's The Silent Patient, which is a thriller. We'll see how that goes. I, I don't know anything about this book. It's my recommendation. I take full responsibility. Um, <laughs> so again, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too. If, you've, enjo- you. <laughs> if you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read, read something. something.